0: Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Roggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers what we used to call the global war on terror and some other interesting issues which we're um, expanding into. Today, I am joined with my co-host, Caleb Weiss. He's a longtime contributor to FDD's Long War Journal, and he's a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation. Today, we're also joined by Ryan O'Farrell, who is also a senior analyst at, at Bridgeway, along with Caleb. Uh, and like Caleb and I, he's an all-around conflict nerd. Ryan is also co-author of The Islamic State in Africa, which is pretty much the definitive book out there on how to understand the Islamic State and why the Islamic State is, is where it is on the African continent today. Today, obviously, uh, with Caleb and Ryan um, on the show, we're going to be discussing Africa, And we're going to be discussing one of the more opaque Islamic insurgencies in the world, and that is the conflict that is in Mozambique. Um, these type of things, you know, I, I noted uh, Caleb, uh, Ryan and I are nerds. You know, when we start to delve into some of these issues where people aren't looking, this is one of the things I, I started doing when I started the Lone Longwear Journal is looking where other people weren't. And that's why I really appreciate uh, what Ryan is doing here and what Caleb does uh, for us on, on an everyday basis. Gentlemen, welcome to Generation Jihad.
1: Thanks for having me back um, as your
0: quote unquote co-host. I'm going to make that stick,
1: Caleb. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, yeah ryan thanks hey, thanks for joining us we really appreciate you coming on looking yeah. forward to the conversation no i'm very happy to be here great well let's jump into it um the conflict in in mozambique uh, it's uh there's been a, a sort of a contentious debate over the last few years on how to categorize uh this conflict um are they actually jihadists are they socialists that have uh, somehow unironically floated out there and the unlinked to the jihadist movements uh, it's This conflict is, it's murky to the layperson or those who may not specialize in African jihadist affairs. Um, You may have seen headlines, especially after the Palma attack, uh, but people don't, I don't think a lot of people understand how it got to this point. How did all of the sudden, out of the blue, we had the Islamic State rising in Mozambique? So uh, let's uh, discuss the genesis and background on how the jihadist insurgency began. Um, also, uh, what to actually call this group, uh, what should we actually call this group other than Islamic States, Mozambique province, Ryan, um, let's, let's get it going. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I mean,
2: first things first, they, uh, they are jihadists. Um, so I guess now since May, they are the Islamic States, Mozambique province, since they got upgraded prior to that, they were part of the central Africa province, along with the
0: ADF in Congo, Another Islamist group that is an Islamist group, an Islamic state group, according to some people, right? <laughs> Locally, they,
2: they would probably most commonly be called al-Shabaab. Um, so I know there's some confusion there because of the the group in Somalia. Um, but, you know, al-Shabaab for, the, for a long time being kind of the, the main, big, famous jihadist group in East Africa, um, kind of that has become a, a, a bit of a slang term for kind of jihadist militants um, throughout East Africa. And so people kind of applied it to this group and that group then applied it to itself as
0: well. And I'm going to jump in real quick, Ryan. This is like calling someone the Taliban in in uh, south in Southeast Asia, right? You have the Pakistani Taliban. It's Taliban, Shabab means youth. Taliban means, uh, is, is, uh, geez, I'm drawing a blank. Students, right? So Shabab is basically akin to Taliban when it comes to, to South Asia. Sorry to mean to interrupt you there, but uh, that's why these terms kind of get a, get a ne- you know, get expand across the areas. So they become popular.
2: Oh, exactly. Um, so, yeah, they are, I guess, a, a bit more opaque than some of the insurgencies elsewhere in Africa. Um, and I'd say a big part of that is just that they're, they're quite new. Um, you know, this violence did not really start at least in kind of an organized persistent way until October of 2017. Um, you know there were a few incidents here and there of kind of radical um, cells in a few uh, towns and cities in northern Mozambique but the insurgency didn't start until October 2017 and um, pretty quickly escalated and so then by early 2019 so you know less than two years a year and a half. Um, they pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. So, you know, compared to most insurgencies that have pledged allegiance, you know, in Africa or elsewhere that have been around for years or even decades before kind of making that um, that switch, um, this was pretty much right out the gate.
1: Um, Brian, was there like a, like why all of a sudden in October 2017 did this start? Like, what was like the like the start gun that began all this? Like, obviously, they didn't come from anywhere. So, like, why did they like, decide to just start that month? Like, what was the build up, I guess?
2: Yeah. So, um, even, even that aspect is a little bit murky. I mean, the best we can tell, and you know, there's been some very, very good research on the early days. Um, there had been kind of this underlying scene in northern Mozambique um, called uh, Al Asuna, or, you know, people of the Sunnah. And it was kind of this. Um, Salafist movement, but was, you know, peaceful civil society um, groups, kind of community self improvement. Um, And then in the late 2000s, early 2010s, you get some that are uh, a bit more radical, kind of preaching um, disengagement from the government, don't go to state schools, don't vote, don't participate, that sort of thing. And so there's this kind of slow ratcheting up of tensions of these Little tiny cells that were some were connected to other ones, other ones it, it wasn't particularly organized. Um, but then one cell in particular in Mosambuatapraya, which is one of the, the larger towns in Cabo Delgado, a big kind of coastal port city. Um, some of their uh members were arrested by the police, um, pretty much at the behest of local imams who are part of the kind of state backed um, Muslim council which, uh, you know, kind of runs mosques and madrasas and everything in Mozambique. Um, and so basically the the imams that were kind of affiliated with the government got the police to arrest some of these these cell members and um, their friends basically got some firearms together and attacked the police stations and tried to get their, their guys out. And so the clashes lasted, I think, about two days, um, but the police finally kind of got them to withdraw and they left the city and kind of went into the rural areas and I think within 2 or 3 weeks they had started launching attacks um, on those rural outlying areas.
1: So that soon like, a st- like almost immediately after being, you know, this sort of arrest event, 2 or 3 weeks later they started attacks. Yeah. Well, okay, so like the implications of like did they already have these networks in place or like caches like how were they that quick at that?
2: That's what yeah, some of the questions that that raises. And I don't think there are any definitive accounts. I think we can have some educated speculation on it. Um, you know, this group was kind of from the outset had, um, some international connections, particularly to Tanzania. Um, and Tanzania has had a fairly longstanding jihadist scene. Um, for the most part, kind of funneling recruits and money up to Al Shabaab or other networks. Um, But in 2015, 2016, 2017, they did have kind of their first um, attempts at a domestic insurgency and the government cracked down pretty hard. And so a lot of these guys left. Reportedly, some went to Congo um, to to join the ADF and others went down to Mozambique. And so that crackdown was really, you know, at its height was in summer 2017. So a few months prior to the attack in Mozambique. So you kind of put these incidents together. And it kind of builds up this picture of this group was planning something. It had connections to people who had already engaged in violence and who already had, um, you know, at least purported connections to the Islamic State, you know, um, aspirational connections. Um, and so, you know, we're stockpiling weapons, uh, you know, almost certainly as evidenced by the, the attacks in October, and had enough of an infrastructure set up that they could pretty quickly um, turn around and mount a sustained insurgency. So it started off fairly light at first, but you know through the course, you know the, the end of 2017 and throughout 2018, um, it kind of slowly accelerated, um, violence intensified, and the area of where attacks took place expanded um, throughout a lot right. of the coastal districts.
1: I know that, like, you know, the Mozambican security forces definitely did not expect it to be, you know, as large scale or even as, you know, deadly or violent as what it became, you know, as made evident by them, you know, reaching out to Wagner pretty early and that being one of, you know, Wagner being Russia's, you know, nefarious or kind of, you know, PMC that's tied to the state, but, you know, given the possible liability that, you know, Mozambique was one of Wagner's first African destinations, um, other than, like Libya but like especially in sub-Saharan Africa it was really car in Mozambique and I think that's kind of illustrative of Mozambique's kind of failure to recognize that like oh shit like we can't actually handle this right am I reading that right or no
2: yeah um but essentially, I think. I mean, you know, for the first two years of this insurgency, it was really um, pretty rapidly accelerating, and Mozambican security forces really struggled to to contain this group. Um, you know, the Mozambican army is is quite small. You know, by by continental standards, I mean, Mozambique is a large country. You know, the same size as the entire East Coast of the U.S. I, I think forty million people, fifty million. Um, and the army, I think, at the outset of this was maybe ten to 15,000 troops. Um, so very much overstretched. Um, also had some problems with, you know, Mozambique is, is very large, has a lot of ethnic groups, has a lot of languages. And so a lot of troops from southern districts um, would have great difficulty communicating in, um, in Cabo Delgado. With local communities, which, as you can imagine, in like a counterinsurgency situation, is uh, not ideal. So there's a lot of difficulties with how the Mozambicans, you know, could try to manage this insurgency, um, and they didn't do a great job, frankly, for the first couple of years. You know, um, attempted to deploy um, kind of these specialized police units as well, and then you have some issues with kind of interoperability of different security forces. Um, but yeah, by the summer of 2019, they had kind of turned to to Wagner as this um, for for help essentially. And they, I think it was in August of 2019, the the president went to Moscow and they signed a bunch of um, deals. They're not exactly clear about what they signed for, but you can probably bet that the um, natural gas was part of that. And Wagner pretty quickly, um, deployed. So they sent some, uh, helicopters around 200 guys and very quickly deployed into a combat role, you know, within a month. Um, and it did not go well for them. They did not understand the situation. They didn't have very good intelligence. Um, they were, uh, not particularly good at working with their Mozambican counterparts. And so, you know, within a few weeks, they had taken some pretty substantial casualties. Um, I think in total, 11 were killed out of 200. Um, so within two months of of deploying in, they had, uh, they had pulled back to Pemba, the kind of main city, the main port city and the capital of Cabo Delgado. And I think they had a presence there for a few more months, but it was essentially October, November of 2019. And after that, they were done.
1: Right. I remember the... At least like four or five Wagner, you know, troops being killed by you know this group, and the Islamic State quickly, you know, took advantage of that on their 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 you know media channels, which was one of the the first few media that they released from Mozambique, and really the first time that you know a lot of people noticed that hey, the Islamic State is here, and started that debate we mentioned earlier. Um, but you know, even after Wagner was there and they they failed, the group you know continued their you know their their offensive. And, you know, can you talk us through a little bit of, you know, sort of like, you know, the seizure of Mosemboa de Praia and then leading up to Palma and like eventually what, what's happening now with, you know, SADC and Rwanda and everything?
2: Yeah. Um, so essentially the, the insurgency kind of kept kind of kept pushing. And so by early 2020, so kind of a few months after Wagner pulled out, um, the insurgency really shifted tactics. Um, so it was in January, February of 2020, they'd kind of moved away from this small unit guerrilla tactics, you know, raids on isolated outposts or ambushes on convoys or assaults on rural villages um, by, you know, 10 to 30 man teams. And they would have a lot of these. I mean, they are kind of all over the place. And so attacks were consistent and widespread. But by early 2020, they had figured out how to coordinate well enough that they could take a lot of these small units and mount much larger assaults on much larger towns, you know, particularly district capitals. Um, so there's this sequence of offensives where they would kind of hit multiple towns in a row. And then by the time they got to a district capital, it would be around 200 fighters attacking from, from multiple directions. And so on a, on a number of occasions, they were able to overrun you know, major towns that had you know, 50,000 people, 60,000 people. So that kind of persisted, and, and on three separate occasions, they attacked mosin Priya, so kind of the, the birthplace of the rebellion. Um, the first two times, the battles lasted a few days to a week before they withdrew from the town, and the second one, which was in June of 2020, I believe, um, at that point, most of the population had fled. I'm um, it to kind of talk about their tactics. Essentially, these guys were unlike a lot of Islamic State affiliates kind of end up aspiring to govern a population, the insurgents in Mozambique do not appear to have had any real interest in doing so. This is pretty much scorched earth tactics drive out everyone. Um, So without much regard for religion or ethnicity. Um, So after that June assault on Mozambique, most of the civilian population had fled, but then in a Third assault in August. They overran the town completely, um, forced the Mozambican army and police to flee the city. Um, so the, at this point there were other, um, PMCs, South Africans. So the, the DAG, the Dick advisory group, which was providing air support, um, to the Mozambican army. So they, DAG attempted to kind of help out, but it was, uh, kind of a, a lost battle. And so the, the insurgents were able to take over Mosin Priya, and they held it for a year. And this was the largest town or urban area that had any Islamic state affiliate anywhere in the world had, had seized since basically the fall of the territorial caliphate in Iraq and Syria. Um, so not many people living there, and there wasn't, weren't many people to govern, but it was a, a very large urban area, and by that time it was pretty clear that this group had moved from being kind of a rural guerrilla insurgency into more of a, a conventional posture where they were con- physically controlling territory.
0: How many, Brian? how many, how many uh, Islamic State fighters were, do, you, do we know who were involved in this operation to take and hold it? Some of
2: the estimates vary. I, I'd say probably low
0: hundreds would be
2: a, a safe bet. Um, had some testimony from, like, you know, former fighters who uh, deserted or defected, um, particularly a lot of testimony from hostages who've escaped that have been interviewed by researchers. Um, so some of those say as high as 500. Um, but, you know, that's plausible. But low hundreds, I, I think, would be the a, a good
0: bet. And did we have any indication of uh, either the the local fighters going out outside of uh, Mozambique for training or foreign fighters coming in or perhaps a combination of both
2: um so definitely foreign fighters coming in so kind of as i said before um a lot of tanzanians um so probably in the low hundreds out of yeah at the height so in 2020 2021 um there was probably 2 to 3000 fighters in total um mm-hmm and at least several hundred of them would have been Tanzanians and a lot of the leadership. Um, some foreign fighters from elsewhere as well have been some reports of some Somalis, some Ugandans, some Kenyans, um, but pretty low numbers for those, you know,
0: if I had to give a, a ballpark total, probably less than 30. It just strikes me that, you know, uh, if, if the, even if that number was a 1,000, that they were able to take and ho- uh, hold it for a year. It either speaks to their capabilities or the poor training and execution of the Mozambique security forces or or a combination of both? Yeah, it's just not a lot of troops to hold a major population center.
2: Yeah, no, it's true. Um, I mean, I'd say it probably more points to the latter and towards kind of the weakness at that time of Mozambican security forces. Um, It also should be said that the the terrain is really tough. Um, So infrastructure is not good. And that essentially forces um, Mozambican security forces to mount patrols on like pretty thin dirt roads going through heavy bush. And it's just really easy to get ambushed. Um, and that's usually what would happen. And so essentially um, the, you know, Al-Shabaab kind of held to Praia and then a string of towns that kind of went west of there along the only road that you could arrive at it at. And so they had kind of blocked these sequence of towns, and any time a convoy would try to roll through, it would get ambushed and be forced to turn back. Um, so that's essentially how they held it, is just, you know, there was only a few approaches, and they, they were able to kind of maintain them as as, as blocks. So not so much. I, I've seen some reports of Shabaab fighters going outside to train. I've not seen anything confirmed on that. It's kind of part of the rumor mill, you know, including going to Congo. Um, but I haven't seen any confirmation that that's been the case. Um, There are definitely connections, obviously, to the Islamic State and through its kind of more immediate East African networks. Um, So it would not surprise me if, like, there were envoys being sent who provided technical expertise and training and advice and that sort of thing, um, in in addition to money. But I don't think there has been much of an outflow, um, at least not until you know, probably the last year, but we'll get to that. Great. Right.
1: Definitely want to get back on these like international points, but I think first we should lay the foundation of, you know, now Mozambique and security forces are, you know, fighting alongside Rwanda fighting alongside other South Southern African states. How did this come about? Like why are there now so many countries intervening in Mozambique?
2: Yeah. So that really was a, a reaction to the March, 2021 attack on Palma. Um, so They had seized Mosambauda Praia in August of 2020, and, you know, the the insurgency never stopped, but there was a bit of a dip after that. So late 2020 and early 2021, you know, the rate of attacks had fallen. Um, There were a lot of kind of rumor mill reports of insurgents having trouble procuring food and ammunition. Um, You know, it's kind of the problem was when you drive out the entire civilian population, there's not really much to sustain you beyond what you can loot. Um, and when the loot runs out, you tend to run into problems. Um, so after that dip, they launched this attack on Palma, which is, um, you know, a, a pretty sizable town in northern, northern Cabo Delgado. So, um, you know, like real far up towards the border with Tanzania. And it's the largest town near the Afungi Peninsula, which has a giant natural gas project that's been kind of under work since 2012 or so they found these was it owned, owned by total right the, the french or they had some investment in it yes um so it started out actually as an american project anadarko um but then they sold the rights to total um after you know some issues with the insurgents so the the insurgents had never really attacked it before at least not directly there had been a couple ambushes on personnel um but they never mounted a direct assault on the project um, some speculation about why, but that in any case that, that ended in March, 2021. So they, they attacked the town pretty much overran all of it. They didn't get all the way into the actual gas facility cause that's 10 kilometers outside of the town. Um, but they did kidnap and kill several foreign workers, um, that who were staying in a, in a hotel in Palma. So this brought massive international attention. Um, Mozambican army was able to drive them out of the town, and was able to rescue some of the uh, some of the hostages and the people who were attempting to escape. But um, you know, it was a pretty major battle, very quickly publicized by Islamic State. Um, so that kind of brought it to everyone's attention, and so there was kind of a, a renewed pressure on the Mozambican government of you know something has to change. This is not sustainable. You need to do something about this, and you, know, you can clearly can't handle this um, you know by yourself as is. Um, so then there was kind of a series of negotiations with SADC, so Southern African Development Community, about um, deploying a multinational force to Kabul de um, People didn't realize at the time that apparently the Mozambican government was also in negotiations with Rwanda. And so right before the SADC force was supposed, supposed to deploy, um, about a thousand Rwandan troops showed up um, in, in July of 2021. Very quickly secured the area around Palma and the gas project, and then started pushing down the road south towards Mosamboda Praia and took over Mosamboda Praia, kicked out the insurgents um, in early August. So, approximately a year after the uh shabaab had taken over. Basically, with this kind of introduction of, you know, I think now it's probably 3,500 foreign troops total between the SADC Commission and the Rwandans.
1: What countries are part of SADC that are part of this? Is it. Botswana, South Africa, and who else?
2: Tanzania also has a lot of troops. So yeah. most of SADC has deployed troops. Um, it's just in varying proportions. Um, and some provide different things. So like Angola provides a lot of um, kind of air logistics capacity rather than ground troops. Um, so they've had some funding issues. So it's it could eventually be as many as 3,000 from SATIC, from the, the SADC mission. Um, but I think the, the current numbers around... 12, 1500. And so them and the Rwandans, they kind of have these different zones of Cabo Delgado that are their areas of responsibility. Um, but they've, they've really forced the insurgency back. They've retaken pretty much every town that the insurgency has had held through 2020 and 2021 um, and kind of forced them to revert back to the 2018-2019 kind of small unit guerrilla tactics. So progress for sure, but it's kind of metastasized into a new period
1: right um you know we can talk about it now of like how you know especially with like the islamic state media you're seeing attacks claimed in you know new areas of Cabo Delgado that they've never really claimed in before so are we seeing this on the ground of like actual you know shabab cells popping up in either new provinces new districts or wherever that they really haven't historically been at but like have been pushed that direction
2: um, yeah, and fairly quickly after the interventions began. Um, so by November, December of last year, so a year ago, um, started seeing attacks by al-Shabaab units in Nyasa province, which is further inland to the west of Kabul de um, So it didn't last very long in Nyasa, It was you know, ar- around a month um, and security forces reacted pretty quickly, kind of reportedly killed the, that local commander. Um, but it was a worrying sign. And they, they kind of figured out who this guy was, at least reportedly. Um, and he was from Nyasa and had kind of joined the insurgency and traveled to Cabal Delgado and then apparently um, went back to his home province and kind of stood up a force there. So since then, you know, March, April, um, particularly in June, we've seen a similar dynamic where Al Shabaab mounted attacks um, as far south as Nampula Province, so the next province south, um, and then into other parts of southwestern Cabo Delgado that they had previously not operated in, um, and so you know pretty far away from the Mozambican Praia hardland. Um, and it seems, you know, if, if I had to guess, I I think it's a similar dynamic to what we saw with Nyasa, and that they've. For a long time, they have been recruiting outside of the heartland where the insurgency actually operated. Um, so they were bringing in people from Nampula Province, bringing in people from Nyasa Province through these kind of long-standing recruitment and supply networks. And so it seemed seems like in reaction to the interventions, there was a, a plan put in place of um, sending people back out away from you know kind of the the core areas, and this was a it appears to have been a, a pretty deliberate strategy of kind of demobilizing their own fighters, sending them back out into civilian communities, um, reportedly amongst IDPs. There are a lot of IDPs in from Cabal Delgado, you know, over a million. Um, and kind of using those guys that they sent back out, you know, number one, because they couldn't sustain them because they were under so much military pressure, but also in order to stand up supply and support networks. And now we're starting to see some of that be operationalized, I think, into either assisting mobile units as they travel pretty far um, outside the core areas or to launch kind of cell-based attacks with with stockpiled weapons. Um, So it's a bit unclear kind of which is which or to which degree it is, whether it's kind of cell attacks or mobile units being helped by... Um, kind of supply and support networks. Um, but the distance that they're covering is often very large. So, you know, tens of kilometers within a few days. Um, so they either have kind of motorized transport, be that motorcycles, I've seen trucks in some instances. Um, but essentially, as they've been expanding outside of those core areas, they've really overstretched security forces. I mean, you already have manpower limits. The, you know, foreign forces have really helped. In, in a lot of ways in those core areas. Um, but they're now expanding way, way outside um, what can be covered by existing force deployments. And it's, it's um, really been a, a problem, over the, particularly over the past few months.
0: Has Mozambique been increasing its security forces and increasing training for its forces for counterinsurgency-focused operations? Or are they just standing pat on this?
2: No, they they have been. Um, I'm not so sure on like recruitment statistics in terms of raw manpower numbers, um, but there have been a few programs. The EU funds one primarily staffed by Portugal. Um, I think the US has a few troops there um, kind of training battalions, um, but it's not a particularly large training program. I mean, it's a few hundred at a time, um, certainly helpful and, and you know, long overdue in my opinion, but um, it's I think it will probably continue to struggle to cover the kind of scale of the, the kind of emerging new conflict zone.
1: One last question on this before we sort of move on to a, a, another topic. But, you know, I know Bill and I hate this question because usually troop estimates are you know way too low. But if you had to put a number of where, you know, Shabab stands today, how many, how many fighters are we talking about now?
2: It's kind of hard to tell. I mean, they had gone from a peak of probably two to three thousand in kind of late 2020. Um, that had fallen to probably around 500 by late of late last year. Um, you know, between pretty significant casualties, I mean, at least a few hundred killed in, in battles um, with SADC, Mozambican security forces, and the and the Rwandans. And then also kind of this strategic demobilization. Um, So it had gone down by quite a bit. Um, So maybe it has gone up again since then, but I I don't know if anyone's really clear on that. Um, But I would say overall, probably somewhere between 500 and 1,000, somewhere kind of ballpark estimate, Um, obviously with some kind of squishiness on that given
0: kind of the, the distinction between like full-time fighters versus supporters or supply networks, right. part-time, that
1: sort of thing. It's likely more than that. I mean, just from Bill's and I's experience of, of dealing with these sort of estimates, it's usually more than what people think it is just given, uh, you know, what they're doing up on the ground operationally and, you know, what you said about all the support and logistical networks. Um and it is hard to distinguish between full and part-time members. Um but me personally I would classify part-time members within the overall overall estimate because those are you know complementing and you know part of the overall network, if that makes sense. But we we'll just we we'll just move on to you know something that we talked about earlier, which is the the international aspect of this group. Um, I know you mentioned Tanzania and it's sort of, you know, intrinsically linked to this group, um, which is, you know, part of the whole, you know, Al Qaeda had a long history in Tanzania. That's where it did the 1998 bombings. There's a handful of, you know, attempted startups, YAQ in Tanzania. Um, You know, there was that insurgency um, in 2015. Uh, and Shabab, even like actual Shabab in Somalia, um, claimed some attacks in Tanzania in 2013. You know, so there's always been something there that Al Qaeda has, 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 you know, tried to do, um, but obviously didn't really get anywhere to where they'd be able to stand up a full fledged branch or anything. Um, and you know, we can talk about this a little later, and something that you and I have talked about a lot of something happened in 2015, 2016, 2017 for those Al Qaeda networks in Tanzania just completely flipped um, to the Islamic state. Um, but first let's, let's talk more about, you know, Shabab in general of like these international, you know, connections. Cause you know, we did mention this contentious debate, which is not unlike Congo around whether or not, you know, these guys are actually affiliated with the Islamic state. Um, and, you know, I, I think sort of now where we are in, you know, late 2022, these arguments have sort of gone to bed. Um, I think those who are advocating that they were always the Islamic state have sort of won that debate um, but I, I still think it's important to discuss, you know, how this group joined IS, why it joined IS, you know, and, and sort of what changed within the conflict after joining IS. Um, you mentioned that they were pretty quick at at joining the group, uh, you know, almost you know, a couple of years uh after starting the conflict, but obviously there's probably something going on behind the scenes prior to the official joining of the of the Islamic State, because that's usually how these these things work. Um yeah, you know, and this is something that you and I and and our other Bridgeway colleagues, Tara Ware and Warren um, we've written out publicly about the ADF in Congo, um, that there was you know sort of a distinct difference between pre and post joining the Islamic State. So, do we see these similar dynamics, you know, in Mozambique? Is I think the overall question here.
2: It's hard to tell, just because like this insurgency, unlike other jihadist insurgencies in the continent is extremely secretive. Um, I mean, you know, you've tracked media and, you know, you can probably speak on this better than I can, but like their their media output was really, really low until very recently. I mean, this is now, you know, coming up on the third year of being part, you know, officially part of the Islamic State, or at least publicly so. Right. And their media output has not really been substantial or consistent until, you know, the last four or five months. Right.
1: It wasn't until they became their own province in May of this year that they've really expanded. So between June of 2019 to May of this year, uh, we're only talking like around 100 claims, and now we're at you know 227, so double what they did in less than a year of from f- you know four years of existence, essentially.
0: Yeah, where they took cities and towns and yeah, and forced an international intervention. Uh, it it really is striking, Caleb. Uh, yeah,
1: that's a huge escalation in media output, which I, I think is a question. You know, I don't know if you know I, you have the answer to. It. We talked about this previously, but it, it's also something's happening there. Uh, something happened where now we're getting this deluge of claims and media from Mozambique that we previously weren't getting.
2: Yeah, I mean it is it is pretty confusing. Um, yeah, I've seen some theories that the lack of media prior to the interventions was. Um, you know, intended to kind of fly under the radar as they were holding these pretty large towns that they had asked Islamic State not to publish a lot of the media that they were recording because they didn't want too much international attention. Um, but then, you know, after Palma and the interventions, it kind of didn't matter anymore. And so then that kind of flipped it towards, okay, now you're a province, media output needs to go up. It's one theory. It's not confirmed by any means. Um, it's also kind of hard to tell because we, we don't have a very good picture of leadership, or it, at least not to the degree of other insurgent groups. So there are notable individuals that we are 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 pretty clear on who they are and what their roles are. Um but in terms of you know the the backgrounds on some of these guys, how you know, kind of varying attitudes towards joining Islamic State, we're we're not really clear on that. Um the US government appears to believe that a, a Tanzanian guy named um Abu Qasim is the leader and he's from Pwani, which is where that kind of 2016, 2017 insurgency took place. Um, but it's also kind of funny. I mean, like, there's not really much reporting from anywhere else about who he is. Like,
1: that's purely from from USG. No, and to be clear, like the, the reporting on any Tanzanian militant network is also really hard to come across. Yeah,
2: it's just it's really difficult to to parse. Um, So some of the Mozambican commanders there are better known. So um, Ibn Omar is kind of the the main guy. He's like the military head, reportedly the um, external comms chief, so the main guy communicating with Islamic State. Um, But people, it's very unclear kind of what differing attitudes within the leadership are towards joining the Islamic State, you know, whether some want to be closer, some kind of want to keep at arm's length. Um, It's unclear kind of leadership turnover I mean this is a group that had pretty significant casualties over the past year lost a lot of major camps but we don't really know who's in what position now um you know who's left who's been promoted that sort of thing how does that affect the relationship like all of that is very unclear um we just don't have um kind of much much insight into it they do appear to, in in addition to like media increasing, um, there has been a lot more notes of outreach towards civilians lately. Um, So there had been a few instances back at the height in 2020 where, you know, commanders, including um, Ibn Omar, um, had kind of given speeches to civilians in in communities that they had overrun. Um, Not particularly sophisticated rhetoric. I mean, it was essentially, you know, we're fighting for, Um, Islamic state. We're going to implement Sharia. The government is, you know, secular, communist, atheist, whatever slur you want. Um, We're going to make the government good and don't oppose us or we'll kill you. Um, That was uh, essentially the rhetoric. And that hasn't really changed. Um, They've been kind of releasing um, these little notes into communities, essentially saying the same thing. But it does seem that the frequency has picked up over the past four or five months. Um, so one of the Mozambican, um, kind of think tanks, and this is very speculative, um, said that they received a directive from Islamic state that you need to kind of alter your tactics and be, conduct more outreach towards, um, local communities rather than just, you know, committing atrocities and threatening them. Um, so still needs to be confirmed that that happened
1: um but that's at least right that sort of rep- replicates the the nigerian model of doing both attacks and like some sort of semblance of like government or administrative division for the for the populace so, which i'm assuming that's if, if that is true that's probably what they're probably basing it off off of yeah i mean it, it, that
2: is that is the islamic state model um so i think yeah. this group you know they they might be following that as a directive you know, again, potentially, um, they definitely don't have the the administrative apparatus or the wherewithal to to do what, you know, ISWAP in, in Northeast Nigeria has um, been able to implement in terms of like a taxation and um, judicial structure and all of that. Um, they're nowhere near there. But starting to see some hints that they might be interested in it, um, or at least, you know, kind of, Saying, okay, yes, sir, to, to directives coming from from up above. Mm. Um, so that is a pretty notable distinction from ADF and Congo, that ADF and Congo has never even kind of hinted at it. Um, and I, I think a big part of that is you know, where the ADF is operating, there's a very, very negligible Muslim population to to govern, whereas it, in Cabo Delgado, the Muslim population is 60, 70, 80%. Um, so there there is a at least from the Islamic State's perspective, a plausible um, kind of uh, community that it could govern over, even if in the real world um, the insurgency there has been like nothing but brutal and exploitative towards towards the
1: yeah. the population, right? And even like the small amount of dawa or like this outreach that the ADF has done that that you and I are our, our colleague Tara have have written about, it was, it's sort of. You know backfired on them you know they they went after you know a marginalized community community eventually turned on them so you know these lessons that these you know other islamic state branches are, are warning of like you know hey we do need to implement this model that we do everywhere especially very successfully in in nigeria where that's sort of been like the islamic state's go-to model for what they're trying to do around the world you know, so it's interesting that these scripts are trying to emulate that, but obviously there are these local limitations that they're gonna run into. Um, and I think that you know what you said about the the little leaflets that they're they're giving around or whatever that's floating on social media, you know now they're saying you know the Islamic State, Mozambique, but they always call themselves Islamic State in these, right? Like their internal identity was this, or is this something new?
0: There
2: have been
1: you know, little, like, pictures of graffiti, you know, after they
2: overran a town. Um, and it's kind of a mixture. Sometimes it has said, you know, Islamic State, um, you know, usually in Portuguese. And say more consistently, it has just been al-Shabaab, um, you know, when gotcha. they're, when they're okay. referring to themselves. Um, but with these letters... And then these little kind of leaflets that have, have popped up in in a few different locations in, in Cabo Delgado, they they it has been more consistently referring to themselves as Islamic State Mozambique Province, which I think dovetails with with the the media releases. I mean, they're consistent across multiple units operating in most of the areas and districts in which um, Al Shabaab is now um, present and and conducting attacks. So they they pretty clearly have a you know, if not a well-integrated command and control, at, at the very least, their communications between these, you know, very disparate units are are, are pretty tight and able to transmit back, um, you know, either to their central leadership in Mozambique and then also up to Islamic State's central media apparatus, um, reports of where their attacks have taken place and also media documenting that. Right
1: something we've written about a lot is like the internal identity of the ADF as the Islamic state was crucial to understanding the transformation of becoming the Islamic states, you know, official representative um, in Congo and, and much of central Africa. Uh, you know, so it's, it's interesting to see, you know, whether or not that transformation is taking place with this group of whether or not their internal identity is now solely the Islamic state or has it always been that or, you know, so that's to me, that's like the the best, you know, identifier of whether or not this group is what it is that it's saying is it is, is that its internal identity reflects that. Um so it, it, this is honestly just a genuine question. Did not know whether or not those leaflets have always been that way, or this is like new calling themselves the Islamic State. And then of of the most recent letter that's come about that does say Mozambique province. Um, which I think what you said about dovetailing with like them becoming their province and the media output probably has a lot of what a what a weight to that argument of you know now that we are our own province, we have to be you know more official, I guess, if that makes sense of of we need to prove ourselves as an actual Islamic state branch. so now you're seeing more outreach now you're seeing more propaganda now you're seeing more you know quote unquote expansion. but I don't know if that argument holds up or whether or not you would agree with that
2: um yeah, I mean that's generally been my impression. I mean this is like it's it's pretty consistent across multiple parts of Cabo Delgado now, um, that I think, I just think we're seeing a, a consistency in kind of self-references and references that are meant, um, being directed at local communities rather than, you know, media that gets sent up to Islamic State and then out with all the branding. Um, cause you know, of course that is going to say Islamic State on it. Um, but I think what's um, a better indication is the the local releases that are the local, yeah, yeah, that are that are just meant for for the you know kind of directly affected local communities, and so that I think there is more consistency now, um, and that's really been the case over the last you know two years. Um, so, but again, it, it's it's really hard to tell with this group because you know the the exact profiles of fighters are a, a bit murky <laughs> and who the leadership is that's murky and there aren't many civilians in the areas in which they operate who can kind of sneak out news about how that, what these guys are talking about. I mean, you're, you're, it's, it, it ends up being really, really reliant on, um, kind of testimony of people who've managed to escape, which is a pretty small population. Um, you know, cause they, they conducted a lot of kidnappings, you know, basically to hold people in their camps. But, um, And so sometimes those people can get out and kind of report back about how this group kind of conceives of itself. And most of the time, those reports have been, yes, these guys are calling themselves Islamic State. And that goes back to probably late 2019, 2020. I think another factor is you you had a lot of young men who were joining this group who, you know, might have joined because they got roughed up by security forces and this was kind of an outlet. So like, how much does that, you know, 17 year old kid who's kind of been given this chance to um, express his dissatisfaction through armed action, um, how much do they really buy into like Islamic state as an identity versus like a commander who's, you know, uh, has you know, religious training and is much more ideological I think now, with you know, between casualties and these demobilizations, one possibility is that it's kind of um, trimmed off some of the less ideologically motivated um, members of the group. And so now you're stuck with a core that is like in it just for that. Um, So that's speculative, you know, to be clear. Um, But I think that may be one reason that we're seeing the. Um, kind of the provincial status being granted and the consistency in media releases and the consistency in these local letters is that you've got, um, you know, what's left of this group is much more ideologically committed than it might have been back in 2019,
0: 2020. Ryan, you're making a a very important point about the the leadership. If you could understand the leadership of these groups, you could see the connections internationally, you could understand their ideology. And it's been, this is what makes countries, like Mozambique, where you say call them opaque, it's the perfect way to describe it. It makes them very difficult to track, very difficult to understand because of exactly what you're describing. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to point that out, that that is, it's what made tracking the Taliban in Afghanistan or Pakistan extremely easy. Um, the, both the Al Qaeda and the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, right? We could see key leaders going back and forth. We know their their histories, we know their ties to other key leaders and where they fought. And in, and in a country like Mozambique, we're, we're kind of left Trying to read the tea leaves the, on propaganda, as you noted, people that snuck out from areas under control. You're not getting, probably not getting a lot of captured um, individuals uh, who are spilling the beans on the leadership. So yeah, I just wanted to point it out. That's that's a, a crucial point you're making.
1: Yeah, I think murky is the key word of this of this episode here. Which shout out to Tom Jocelyn. That's one of his favorite yeah, words. Exactly, is murky. <laughs> but this group this group in the context around the whole of you know the insurgency in Mozambique is itself murky for sure um you know I, I have one last question which i think we kind of hit on this a little earlier when you talked about not wanting to bring too much attention or international attention on them but like you know the islamic state you know sure they claimed the capture of, of mozambique and and palma but didn't really highlight those those things that much uh, which you would think they would, uh, you know. One of the core Islamic State tenets is tamkin, or consolidation, or you know, one a facet or one aspect of being a caliphate, or even a province's disability to consolidate territory and govern. And they sort of did that. I mean, of course, you mentioned like the the removal of population from those towns, but they still held these pretty large cities. Yet the Islamic State was relatively silent on that. Um, do you have any like theories or ideas of why that may be, or may have been?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's kind of a few points, um, you know, again, not wanting to bring too much attention. I I'd say that's the one that makes the most immediate sense, but also, you know, I think with the broad expulsion of the civilian population and, um, I think that might be a factor in that, you know, you can consolidate territory and take over towns, but you know, why, why show it off if there's no one there and there's infrastructure that you can't maintain and, you know, there's also reports that, you know, they they probably had like 100 fighters in Mosamboa de Praia, um, but it's not where the leadership was and it's not where the main camps were. They just kind of had people there to, I guess, protect it, but it wasn't because it was the center of their operations and it's not where um, fighters were training or weapons were stockpiled or anything like that. So it's, I guess, kind of, you know, maybe one way to interpret that is... Yes, they controlled this territory, but if the point of the Islamic State is to control and govern and there's nothing to govern and you don't have the capacity to govern and there's no people to govern, then it kind of is a little more hollow if you try to show it off too much. Um, You know, you can't have the kind of 2015, 2016 height of the caliphate, you know, printing currency and running hospitals and fixing roads and all that stuff. If, A, you have none of the resources to do any of that, and you've already driven out the entire population who's supposed to be living under these laws. Right.
1: That's a tremendous point. Tremendous point of, of you know, there really wasn't a population there to, like, highlight the propaganda of, like, you know, we have, you know, the state now. Like, they do in Nigeria if they highlight the, you know, control of the civilians all the time. I guess they wouldn't have been there because they, they drove out all the, all the civilians.
0: If I may, I mean, I don't think it was a matter of them and i agree exactly what you both had just said here i don't think it was a matter of they didn't want to draw attention because if if they didn't want to draw attention on this you wouldn't kill westerners you wouldn't take over a town where western countries have a petroleum interest right development interest but i think it's more of an issue of we don't really want to promote this takeover because it's not maybe one of our better ones this isn't this is what you had just described here right we're we're not Taking care of the people. We're not maintaining infrastructure. We're not building a caliphate here. We just conquered. I think I think that's where I I agree with both of you on that point. Yeah.
2: It's hard to tell. I mean, at the end of the day, these are without any kind of insights into their internal processes and deliberations, you know, either at the Islamic State level or at the Mozambique level, it's they end up all being a bit speculative. You know, I guess one other thing is you know, they had taken over Mosin-Bodapri in August of 2020, and the Palma attack wasn't until March of 2021. So there's this kind of eight, nine-month period where the situation was broadly stalemated, and that's when you started seeing those reports of, like, running out of food in the camps and um, releasing a lot of hostages because they couldn't feed them. Um, so I guess one possibility is that they they took over the town, didn't want to publicize it because they didn't want too much attention, but then circumstances elsewhere changed to the to the point where they're like, all right, we need to attack this town because we're running out of money and we're running out of food and we need to stockpile everything we can. And yeah, that's going to bring a lot of heat, but it's at this point, it doesn't matter, like we need to do this. So I think that's where, you know, to add another layer of kind of confusing complexity is, you know, the the interaction between kind of the, the media needs of Islamic State's kind of central apparatus and what looks good for them versus what is expedient for a group on the ground and how well coordinated um, the actions of a group on the ground are to the core's kind of main media message. The necessities and exigencies of both are going to be very different and it's this is all very unclear and don't really know um, kind of who is making those calls and how and how much the interests of either the local affiliate or the central leadership are playing into the decision-making of either. Um, But it does seem like there's a bit of a kind of uh, dilemma there between the two um, that their, their interests are not always aligned when it comes to carrying out attacks um, and kind of coordinating that with the, the propaganda
1: value. Right. So I think we should just move on to, you know, sort of the last discussion here, which is, you know, we've talked about a little bit about the ebbs and flows of this conflict of, you know, starting out really strong. They've sort of had a dip, then came back, and now in a dip, and now they're kind of expanding geographically, Um, you know, and you have the the intervention by Rwanda and SADC, you know, and as we mentioned, the, the increase in Islamic State media and propaganda, you know. So with all that in mind, you know, where do you see the conflict going in the immediate future? Are we in another period of, you know, super ebb and a flow? Like, what, what, what do you see happening?
2: Well, I mean, I'm cautious to, to put a particular trajectory on it. I mean, I, I could see a few different potential outcomes, and I think that probably depends on the reaction of Mozambican and, you know, now international security forces more than anything. Um, I mean, this group is, they're pretty rapidly expanding across large amounts of terrain and they're able to do that because um, security forces are already overstretched but the flip side to that is I think el Shabab itself runs the risk of becoming overstretched um, you know outpacing its support networks um, and so you, you could see a possibility where you might get a mobile unit of 10 to 20 guys um, and they have a bad day and get caught by security forces and wiped out and then you know if you're talking about a group that's you know a few hundred, you know, 500 or so, like, full-time active fighters and then you lose a 20-man unit, like, that's a big loss proportionally. Um, I could see that being a possibility, too. But again, that kind of depends on security forces. So I don't think we've seen any kind of real concrete, um, consistent changes in, you know, actually appealing to civilians um, versus kind of these threatening letters you know, the content of these notes is basically like, we don't have any problems with the Muslims, but if you mess with us, we'll kill you. So, you know, not a particularly attractive message, I think, for most people. And I've not seen anything that's really shifting towards something that might you know boost recruitment.
1: Right. I mean, have you seen anything to indicate, like, weaponizing or operationalizing the support networks? You know, we've sort of seen that with ADF, you know, in you know, Uganda, but is that sort of happening here? Or are there no indications of that?
2: Uh, there's been a few hints, but not not to the degree with ADF. Like with ADF, it's really obvious that you've got these kind of urban supply networks that then kind of got um, rolled into carrying out bombings. That's not happened in Mozambique. Um, got some reports of IEDs, but that's just as a, you know, kind of guerrilla tactic versus um, moving into that more kind of urban cell operations. Um there have been a couple instances, like um, in Nampulo, one of the incursions. There'd basically been some fighters who had gone back to their hometown, and then a unit showed up, an Al Shabaab unit showed up to kind of get them to rejoin them in the bush. So, not quite the same as as organized as a, a kind of operationalizing a support network. Um, but it's pretty clear that the organization is keeping tabs on where its people went. Um, so, you could see that as a possibility down the line. Um, but that's kind of one of the, the odd situations with groups like these, you know, when they're recruiting from a huge, huge territory and they, you know, at most have, you know, low thousands of fighters as they kind of go back out into these support networks and try to keep tabs on them and organize them. Um, that requires a lot of, of personnel and infrastructure to manage and communications. And and so I think that's the big question now is now that this group has pivoted back into kind of a small unit guerrilla mode and is expanding its operational area out into new districts and to new provinces, um, how well can they keep all of that infrastructure um, functional and coordinated and, and communicating well? Because um, I think that probably more than anything is what's going to to make or break their ability to sustain this pivot.
1: I mean, do you see like Rwanda or SATIC troops, you know, redeploying elsewhere, deploying to these new areas or, you know, what has SADIC's response been to, you know, this sort of geographic expansion? Um, so I haven't seen too much response
2: from SATIC itself. Um, they've had some funding issues. So like they've not deployed you know, kind of anywhere near what their their mandate would right, allow.
1: Because I mean, this could be a gap that the group can exploit of like they know the SADC or Rwanda can't really do much in these other areas, so we'll focus here.
2: Yeah, so you have seen the Rwandans deploy outside their, okay. their original zones. Um and they they've kind of been doing that for for a while now. Um you know, the Rwandans were were very effective in in pushing the um insurgency out of some of its main strongholds, like Mosimbota, Praia. Um, SADX had, had, has struggled a bit more in some of the areas that it's responsible for. Um, you know, and again, in large part due to those funding issues, they just don't have like the ISR assets and everything that um, they, they really needed. So the Rwandans have kind of popped up in new areas. Um, I could be misremembering, but I think they they went as far south as Anquave District, which is kind of south. West of Makamea. So like pretty far out away from um, Mosamboda Praia and Palma and kind of the main areas where they first deployed. Um, but you're talking now, you know, they're showing up in Namuno district and Nampula and Balama district on the far southwest of Cabo Delgado. And that's, you know, double, triple the distance from Mosamboda Praia um, that Enquabe is. So like, yeah, I could see RDF going out. But even then, they're still going to get overstretched. I mean, this is just a really, right. really I mean, vast stretch of territory.
1: And RDF has deployments elsewhere on the African continent, too, they have to, to deal with. I mean, do they have the, the the means to allocate enough resources and funds to this specific fight? Well, that's the question, man. I don't think they, they don't appear to have been hesitant about
2: troop numbers. Um, you know, the first deployed 1,000, um, and that got bumped up to, I think it's around 2,500 now. Um, so the rumor is that France is paying for it. I mean, Total is a French company. Um, and they kind of, you know, especially with Ukraine and Russia and everything, they, they want the gas. Um, I don't think that's been confirmed, but that's certainly what the, the rumor mill is saying. Um, so it doesn't appear that they have a, a kind of hesitancy towards, towards deploying um, quite a few troops. I'd say the big problem is, is more technology. You know what kind of drones do they have available to them? What kind of rotary assets do they have available to them? You've got these um, disparate insurgent units that are moving, evidently, very quickly over long stretches of terrain. You know what kind of mobility assets do SADC and the Rwandans and the Mozambicans have to kind of chase these guys down and be able to react very quickly when these new attacks pop up? Um, that I think is a big question, and you know, as seen with. SADC's funding issues, they were not able, you know, South Africa deployed a lot of helicopters, but they had twice as many helicopters in Congo as part of MINUSCO than they did with, um, with their troops in Mozambique. And even then they had problems with like maintenance and things. So I think the EU has now agreed to help bankroll some of the SADC mission, but how much that affects what kind of um, you know, drones and planes and other, you know, monitoring and, and kind of quick reaction assets I think that remains to be seen.
1: Gotcha. I think before we uh we wrap this up, do you have any final thoughts or comments that you would you would like to make about this?
2: I'd say the big one is like, you know, these insurgencies, and you see this time and time again across the continent, these are not just little groups that are easy to dismiss. I mean, they have massive impacts. They can drag in a lot of international investment in efforts to counter them. And they are sophisticated and adaptable. Um, this is, you know, I, I think some of the reactions, you know, particularly now that the, the world has moved on to great power competition and all that is to just pretend like, you know, these groups are, you know, the, the previous era's problem and we don't really need to worry about it anymore. And that is very much not the case for the communities affected. And so letting these things fester and putting them on the back burner is, I think a a really bad, really bad policy. Um, And I think the insurgency in Mozambique has, has really proven that point and that they, you know, finally got hit with a serious intervention with thousands of international troops, took substantial casualties, got forced out of most of their strongholds and they figured out how to pivot and expand and, it's a very different model than what they had in 2020, um, but it is no less serious and no less challenging than it was back then. Um, and I think, you know, we really need to take the insurgency in Mozambique um, very seriously because it's, it's the kind of conflict which, if left to fester, could have really damaging consequences throughout um, East and Southern Africa.
1: You know, certainly if the international connections, you know, especially between Tanzania, Congo, elsewhere, you know, especially if they, those ever grow or expand, we're talking, you know, way more regionalization of this conflict than just Mozambique and, you know, southern Tanzania.
0: Well, very well said, Ryan. I um, I couldn't agree with you more. The You know, we tend to ignore these issues until they become a problem that we can't ignore anymore. I think what you just... You and Caleb uh, laid out here is a perfect example of ignoring a problem and and not addressing it in inter- until an intervention, an international intervention. You know it has to happen. These these conflicts don't have to go this way. And I think this is also speaks to the problem of denying what this group claimed it was. It was part of the Islamic State. Well, no, we'll just say it's a local insurgency, and then. You know, and un- you know, it's it's always a local insurgency until it isn't anymore. And th- this type of attitudes has caused uh, pain in both locally, uh, you know, in countries like Mozambique and through in other countries in Africa and throughout the world. And it and then as Caleb, as you noted, they they create regional problems, and then they ultimately can create a threat to the homeland here in the United States or in Europe and or amongst our allies. Ryan, thank you very much for joining. You it's uh, great to finally uh, speak with you. Um, We are very pleased to have you on Generation Jihad, and please join us again.
2: My pleasure. Thanks
0: for having me. Done. Great job, Caleb. Thanks again. You know, let's get you back on soon. Um, Absolutely. If, if you're gonna be a co, if I gotta call you a co-host, that means you gotta join. <laughs>
1: so. All right, all right, Mr. Bossman.
0: <laughs> I am not your boss. I'm your colleague.
1: Okay, sure. <laughs> who's, who's, who signs the paychecks?
0: <laughs> you get paid? I didn't know that. Huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, not by the CIA. Wink, wink. <laughs>
0: hey, look. Um, I've been accused of uh, being paid by. CIA, Mossad, RAW, which is into research and analysis wing in India. Ironically, the the ISI in Pakistan or the Internal Services Intelligence Directorate, and the Taliban because of my creation of the map. And all I have to say to that is, if you all are listening, I'm waiting for my first check. So please send it over. I'll you know reach out to me. I'll get you my address. I'd like to see the the cash money sometimes. If too. you can
1: get paid by both RAW and ISI,
0: you're living the dream, dude. I I, I mean, right? And then put and put Masad in there. I mean, come on, <laughs> that's the trifecta.
2: I think you need to start a bidding war.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I actually, yeah, that's a great idea. I just prefer to get paid by them all, frankly. That that would yeah. make me happy. <laughs> Increase the income. Um, equal opportunity. Exactly. I am equal opportunity show. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks again for joining us. Ryan, again, it was a pleasure. Caleb, great to have you on as the co-host. And thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all soon.